want to turn back to Luke chapter 14 again this morning. Uh, by now, everyone should be at least reading ahead and pretty sure where we're going to be each Sunday morning. You remember last week, Jesus was uh, attending a dinner of a Pharisee somewhere in Galilee or between Galilee and Judea as he begins to make his long journey toward Jerusalem. And he was in this Pharisee's house, and of course there was a man there before him who had a disease, a sickness that we're told is dropsy, and Jesus heals the man and points out the, uh, the ethics, the morality of healing on the Sabbath day, contrary to what the Pharisees' uh, prior opinion had been. And we closed out last week by seeing Jesus' instructions to the guests at the dinner, telling them when you are invited to a dinner, when you're invited to a party, don't take the seat of greatest honor because the chances are you're not the most honored person there and you'll be demoted. But wisdom would say sit down in the lowest seat so that someone would promote you or exalt you. And there he teaches us a lesson of humility. And, of course, we went and read from, from Peter's letter where he says, Humble yourselves before God and what he will lift you up. He'll exalt you in due time. Jesus continues talking at this meal, and we pick up reading this morning in verse 12. Then said he also to him that bade him. So Jesus has already talked to the guests. Now he turns his attention to this Pharisee who's hosting him, who has him there to a meal. He said to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. We'll continue beyond this this morning, Lord willing, but just first to look at these three verses and a very important lesson contained there. He says, don't live your life and operate on a quid pro quo basis. I'll scratch your back so that you'll scratch mine. Don't invite people to dinner because you expect them to invite you back to dinner. Don't give and do for only those who you hope to benefit from. Because, says Jesus, you'll reap your reward here in time. You'll get what you pay for, what you expect. Don't do things planning and counting on what's going to the, what the benefit is going to be to you. If you invite someone to dinner expecting them to invite you back, then what you'll do is set up a series of dinners that you get to or have to attend. And, and it's a never-ending process. It's, it's amazing how people who are in that kind of lifestyle complain about it. You know, you throw a party and you invite 15 couples to come and eat with you, and then that's 15 obligated dinners that you have to attend. And then once you attend theirs, you have to invite them back, and it's a, it's a 
circle that never ends. Talk to someone in the military, an officer's wife, about that struggle, that difficulty. It's a system that's terrible to be bound to, and that's what these people were in. But Jesus says you'll get your reward, and several other places Jesus says that. When you do things counting the cost and expecting the, re the reward for it, you'll get your reward, and that reward is going to be limited to here in time, to getting exactly what you expect. Or more often, you'll be disappointed because you won't get quite what you want. I remember my second job that I ever had. I was working at an Army hospital in the maintenance department in San Antonio, and there was a man that I worked with who was an older gentleman, and I guess he figured out how this works because we used to go to lunch together at different restaurants, and uh, we got into this system where we would alternate who was going to pay, and we'd buy each other's lunch on different days of the week. Well, I realized pretty quickly that when it was my turn to buy, he would order something of a steak on the order of 25 or $30 for his meal. But when he was paying, it seemed like we always went to a place where the most expensive thing on the menu was about $7. And he had that system worked out. Well, what did that do? It caused all of us who went with him to not want to go to eat with him anymore. Why? Because it wasn't quite working out on our behalf, on our benefit. Jesus here tells this man who had invited him to dinner, don't think you're going to get something for inviting me here to dinner. And he says, really, when you prepare to feed somebody, it should be an act of hospitality and generosity, not expecting anything in return, not demanding anything in return. Well, how do you avoid that? He says you do it by inviting someone who can't return the favor. Don't, when you prepare a meal, prepare a feast, invite only your friends. Don't invite your brethren, not your kinsmen, nor your rich neighbors, because they will invite you again, and a recompense be made thee. You're not giving anything away if what you give you're expecting and then receive a return on that investment. But instead, when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Call the people who don't have anything, who can't do anything, and can't see to get around. Can't even see to see what work and what trouble you've gone through on their behalf. And thou shalt be blessed. Thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Jesus takes this practical lesson, common sense, and he then applies it to something spiritual, something eternal. He points them to the resurrection, the end of time. And he says there's a benefit there. And what Jesus is saying in this lesson is you can either get your reward here or you can get your reward there. Which one's more important? Which one's more valuable to you? The same teacher, the same instructor, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, tells a story about that last day, that great day, that day of judgment. He says the king is going to come. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to gather all nations before him. He's going to put one group of people on the left and another group of people on the right. And to the ones that he calls goats on his left, he's going to say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Judgment, wrath, condemnation. Why? Well, because I was poor, I was sick, I was in prison, and you did nothing for me. You didn't care for me. Why? Why not care for someone in that condition? 
because there's nothing to be gained from it. That's our attitude. That's our thought. We generally evaluate relationships with people by figuring out if there's anything to be gained from that individual. If they have anything to offer us. Can we learn something from them? Can they do something for us? Is there something of our condition going to be improved? In fact, many of the most charitable people in the world today decide who they're going to give their charity to based on how it's going to play in the tabloids and how it's going to look on the media. Because even if the people they're caring for can't do anything for them directly, it'll look good to others to see that they've done something grand for those who are poor and in need. Jesus here says, when you make a feast, you call the ones who cannot recompense you, who can't pay you back. Why? Because your Father sees what you're doing. And you'll be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Of course, in that last judgment spoken of in Matthew 25, the ones on the right who are the just, the ones on the right who are the sheep, he says, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because I was poor, I was sick, I was in prison, and you cared for me. And the amazing thing about those people is they say, when did we ever do any of it? This isn't done in a calculated manner. Jesus isn't even giving the green light here for you to do it expecting a recompense or a reward in the resurrection of the just. Jesus here talks about character. He talks about general practice, how we behave, how we act, what we do. And it causes the people there to think about what he's saying. Jesus has taken their attention now and he's turned it off the meal at hand and off the people that they're looking around at. And he shifted it now to the resurrection of the just. It causes the people to think about it. Verse 15, When one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. The Jews had this expectation of the kingdom of heaven that was really grand. It wasn't based on any scriptural foundation. But apparently, like me, they really liked food. So when they thought about heaven, what they thought of was a really big feast. And when they talked about eating bread in the kingdom of God, they were talking about that day when all of the Gentiles of the earth are going to be cast aside and it's going to be all Jews in heaven. And in heaven... They're going to lounge around and have a feast of all the best things they could ever imagine on earth. They even wrote stories, fantasy stories, about what this feast was going to be like. They were going to eat meats that they weren't able to eat here on earth. They were going to snack on fruits that were bigger and better than anything that could be grown on earth. And the best thing of all is they weren't going to have to prepare any of it because it was all going to be just laid out for them. And they called this the feast of the kingdom of God. And this means thinking about it. Because Jesus said you'll be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And he's thinking, okay, Jesus just said we don't need to invite people to our feast so that they'll invite us to their feasts. 
and that kind of recompense shouldn't be our goal because you'll get your recompense at the resurrection of the just. So he's saying what Jesus must be saying is if we invite the poor and the indigent to eat our food here, then that will guarantee that we get to eat bread in the kingdom of heaven and that will be our recompense and it will be better food than what we've offered here. So we'll get the best of both worlds. So he makes the statement, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds to that in this way. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So Jesus is sitting at meat with a bunch of rich people and relatives of this Pharisee. He's sitting at meat with a bunch of people who thought they really had it going on and they had a lot of expectation of where they were going to stand in this mythical kingdom of heaven when it came. And as Jesus talks about the resurrection of the just, this man who thinks he is just says, Oh Lord, blessed is the man that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's saying, Lord, we're in a blessed condition. You're right. We shouldn't worry about getting honor or, or reward or recompense here on earth. We're going to dwell in the house of God. The kingdom of heaven is ours. So Jesus tells him a story, a story we should all really think about. There's a lot of ways this could be applied. I think most directly it does apply to those to whom he was speaking, to those Jews who he later in chapter 17 says, the kingdom of heaven is within you, it's here among you. The kingdom of heaven is here. John the Baptist came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was that such a strange message to him? Because they thought the kingdom of heaven was heaven itself. And Jesus was saying, oh no, the kingdom is at hand. It's here. And Jesus said, since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man presseth into it. And Jesus began with these parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. And he starts describing these earthly images, these earthly pictures of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says there's none greater born of woman than John the Baptist, but he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus says very clearly the kingdom is here. The kingdom is real. Jesus tells them the kingdom doesn't come with observation. The kingdom is among you. It's here. 
The kingdom is something spiritual. The kingdom is something experienced. The kingdom is very real. But Jesus here indicates, you people have been bidden to the feast. And you've got more pressing things on your mind. More pressing engagements. It doesn't take much of our imaginations to find how this applies to our own lives. Our priorities are completely out of whack. They just are. And that's no different than the people to whom Jesus himself ministered. So they had the Son of God sitting at meat with them. And they were focused on how they were going to condemn him for healing someone on the Sabbath day. They had the very Lord of glory present with them and they wanted to argue over theology when God himself was in their midst. They were puffing themselves up and seeking to make themselves equal to, if not superior to, the very Lord that they were supposed to worship. And this man says, we're looking for the day when we're going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, let me tell you about this feast you're looking for. There was a man who made a great supper, and he bade many. Now Jesus has just given them instruction. He's given them instruction about where to sit when they come to a feast, and he's also given them instruction about who to invite to a feast. And he says, this man made a great feast. He bid many to come, and he sent his servant out when the supper was ready to go invite people to come in. And the indication is that initially the invitation was given to kinsmen, friends, people of an equal stature, people who ought to have come. And the message went out, come for all things are now ready. And the response of all of them, with one consent, was that they began to make excuse. No, I can't come right now. I'm sorry, I've got more important things to attend to. More important matters at hand. The first one said, I'm sorry, I've bought a piece of ground. I need to go and see it. Sometimes business just takes us away. I bought some land, I need to go check it out. I need to see what I've paid for. Besides the obvious, why would you buy something you've never looked at? There's the question of why was that such a priority? He couldn't come and eat a meal before going to look at his land. The land was his already. It was going to be his tomorrow. Why not wait? Sometimes there are things in our lives that we just think have to take the priority. We have to attend to this right now while it's on my mind. No strike while the iron is hot. When there's something much more important that God is calling us to that we could do at that moment, at that time. These people, we're going to find out, are going to miss out entirely. They're looking for the kingdom of God. They're looking for the feast. They're invited. They're bidden. All things are ready. And they make an excuse. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another business matter. I 
bought some animals. I need to take care of them. I need to check them out. I need to work them. So often in our lives, we get ourselves into situations that make it difficult for us to make the most important thing most important. We make commitments that we have to keep up to, that keep us from the house of God, that keep us from studying His Word, that keep us from a more important commitment that we've already made. This man says, I've bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxes. It's a lot of responsibility, a lot of trouble. He says, I don't have time right now for a meal. I don't have time for supper. I've got to go and prove my ox. I pray they have me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot I'm not even going to get into all of the possible meanings there. Relationships get in the way of our service to God. Get in the way of what's most important. It happens. You remember when we talked about Mary and Martha, when Jesus was coming to their house, coming to dinner at their house, and Martha was cumbered about with much serving. She had a lot of business going on, a lot of work, a lot of things that needed attended to. Mary, when Jesus arrived, stopped everything and sat at his feet to learn. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, Mary's chosen the good part. Sometimes relationships get in the way. We don't want to offend. We don't want to upset We've committed that we're going to read God's Word. We're going to study God's Word every day. Yet we have a child who has a school project, has some need. We put the Bible on the back burner to attend to that need. We're planning on spending time in God's Word. But there's a sporting event that's interesting to us. We go and pay our attention to that instead. We have family come in on the weekends, and they're not really into church. They're not really into the house of the Lord. And we'll go to church next Sunday. Today we're going to stay home and entertain our family. It's a long drive to get to where a church meeting is going on or get to where the Lord's people are meeting. The Word of God's being preached. It's too far to go and too late at night. We're all good at making excuses. But Jesus, again, gives this idea that there's such a thing as too late. There's a limited number of breaths in our life. There's a limited number of opportunities to put the first thing first. Sometimes relationships interfere because I just don't like somebody over there. So I'm not going to go there and hear God's word preached. Miss an opportunity because of it. This one man said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he showed his Lord these things. Don't you know that was an unhappy servant? Trudging back to the house, knowing all the work and all of the money and all the time that had gone into preparing the supper. A supper for 
apparently a great multitude of people, and he's got to walk back there to the house to tell the master, Master, in spite of your kindness, in spite of your generosity, in spite of all your work, nobody wants to come. They've all got more important matters to attend to. For those of us who profess to believe in Christ, we should really consider the commands of his word and his instruction. What he says about what's most important. When he says things like, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. When he says things like, search the scriptures daily. When he says things like, study to show yourselves approved unto God. When he says things like, pray without ceasing. We should consider those commands and we should... Think long and hard before we put those on the back burner to something else that's more important. Because what do you call something that's more important than God? It's called an idol. It's something you worship more than God. The servant came back and he showed his Lord these things, and the master of the house was angry. He said to his servant, we're not going to let this meal go to waste. He says, you go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and you bring in the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Curiously, those are the same people that Jesus just told them you ought to invite to your feast. Back in verse 13, when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Jesus says the master sent forth the servant. Go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And you know what the interesting thing about those people is? They didn't have something more important to do than to come to the big house and eat. No, they came in. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and yet there's still room. This was a big feast prepared. The people he invited didn't come. He brought all the poor and indigent in, and there was still more room. He says, you know what? Go and invite more people in. You beat the hedges and the highways and you find people and you compel them to come in. You tell them about this feast, how wonderful it is. You tell them about the blessings of it. Fill my house. And notice verse 24, the reason. Why? Why is the house needing to be filled? For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. There's a possibility that the man who had bought a piece of land was going to go find that piece of land and examine that piece of land and then come around later to the house where he had been invited to supper, coming looking for a meal. A possibility that the man who said, Oh, I bought five yoke of oxen. I had something more important. He's going to prove those oxen, and then he's going to come looking for a free meal. And the one who married a wife may finally get around to coming to eat and bring with him his wife and her family and the wedding party. Who knows? He says when they come, they are not going to have any food to eat. Why? My house is going to be filled. We're going to consume this feast 
with those who come when they're invited. This was a startling message for these people to hear, no doubt, and it should be for us as well. When we think about all the excuses that we have for disobedience and for not partaking of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Now, there is no invitation spoken of here to become a child of a God, a a member of his family. There's no invitation here to heaven itself. Quite the contrary. One of the problems these Jews had is their focus was all on that eternal heaven. What they were going to do to get eternal life. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit everlasting life? Jesus said, well, you know what the law says, do it. He says, I've done all these things from my youth on. Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Oh, Lord, no, I can't do that. He went away sorrowful. Why? He had much riches. He was focused on everlasting life. He was focused on eternal things. And so many Christians today, so many people today, their focus is on that long-distance future and, and how to obtain that everlasting life with very little care for their current existence. People want to know, how can I make sure I don't go to hell when I die? That's what they want to know. And whether it's small or great, give them that answer and then let them get on with their lives. Christian denominations can be classified by how strict the requirements are to get you into heaven. The less strict they are, the more appealing they may be. Anyone would love to worship at a church where all they have to do to get security in Christ and security of heaven is accept Jesus into their heart, and then it doesn't matter what they do thereafter. What a great situation. Jesus doesn't need to be a priority. Some churches realize that that doesn't work so well, so they change their doctrine, their theology a little bit. Well, you know, you have to accept Jesus, but you also have to obey. There are certain things you have to do. The most strict of denominations have a detailed list of what must be done, and if these things are not accomplished, then when you die, straight to hell is where you're going. Jesus doesn't talk about that at all. These people are focused on heaven, and Jesus says you're missing out on the here and now. Because you're thinking you've got greater priorities than being in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you're making excuses. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the good Jews. The people of whom John wrote, he came into his own, and his own received him not. They received him not. But as many as did receive him, then gave him power to become the sons of God. They were manifestly his. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. He says there are things that are going to be missed out on because of these excuses that you make. 
I want us to think about this and apply this in our lives in a very real manner. When we think about what God's Word instructs us to do and then we don't do it. And this isn't about trying to get you to come to church, although that certainly is one thing you ought to do. This is about everyday life and every decision we make. Every time we choose to put ourselves or some other person ahead of Jesus Christ in our lives, we're choosing to reject His invitation. We're choosing to reject fellowship with Him. And there's a very real possibility that we're missing an opportunity that will never be regained. Jesus was only with them for a short time. And there were so many who missed opportunities to sit at His feet and learn from Him. Who missed opportunities to be in His presence. Imagine all those people on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel and they were pricked in the hearts and they were able to hear it for the first time and understand. And Peter said, God came to earth like He promised He would. And you with wicked hands have crucified Him and killed Him. And many were convicted Convicted of what? Their guilt. Why? They'd seen Jesus. They'd heard Jesus. And they had cried out with a loud voice, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And what would those people, those 3,000 that were baptized on that day of Pentecost, those 3,000 new converts, new Christians, what would they have given to have heard His Word and listened? to have sat in His presence, to have followed Him. Jesus extends this lesson in verse 25 and beyond. If any man come to Me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be My disciple. Jesus says there's a cost to discipleship. And that cost is that we have to give up things that are important to us, things that matter. We have to set them aside. Why? Because Christ matters more. His presence is more important. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that the first, the one that said, I bought a piece of ground, I must needs go and see it, should have said, I've got an invitation to the kingdom. I'm there. He should have gone when he was bidden straight away. That's what we talked about last week, right? Straight away. Straight away going and doing the things we're commanded to do, the service that we're commanded to do. There's no piece of land more important than Jesus Christ and His house. The second one, who said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I've got a job and I've got to do it. I'm needed. I'm required. It's the most important thing. They should have said, what? An invitation to the Master's house. An invitation to His presence? This job can wait. It'll be there when I get there. I'm not going to miss out on what the Lord has to say. See, that's the thing. This wasn't just food to eat. This was the presence of this one who had done the inviting. 
This was a time of fellowship, a time of relationship. And they were saying, that's not most important to me. The other said, I've married a wife. I cannot come. I've got too many things to do at home. I'd like to spend time with her more than with anyone else. Whatever he's thinking, whatever he's saying, Jesus is saying that was the wrong answer. An invitation to the Master's house? I'm there. Nothing is more important. And where do we find that fellowship? Where do we find that kingdom living? We find it in drawing near to Him in His Word. This isn't just about attending church, though that's part of it. This is about daily prayer life, daily study habits. This is about making Him a priority in our thoughts, in our meditations, and living that life that we claim to have in Him. Putting Him first and His Word first. Putting His commands first. The reality is that we all miss out every day on blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus simply because we don't ask. Simply because we don't trust. Simply because we don't put His Word first. We see it when we have problems. Problems at work, problems at home. And we don't go to God's Word for the answers. And we don't go to God in prayer for the answers. We go to somebody else for answers, for help first. Why? Because we trust men more than we trust God. And we're missing out on the potential to receive the blessing of fellowship. To receive the blessing of experiencing what it is to be in His kingdom. To see God work and God rule. Jesus warns these individuals that day, the time is short. Remember, this is all predicated by his statement there in the end of chapter 13, where he said, Today and tomorrow I work, and the third day I must be perfected. Jesus says, My time here is short. This is the end of my ministry. And if you choose someone else ahead of me, you might just miss out. It's a reality in our lives that we don't like to think about. But there are blessings that are missed because we simply don't prioritize them. Because we say, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll get it tomorrow. Talk about that all the time. In youth, oh, when I finish school, then I'll do something. When I finish college, then I'll make time for the Lord. Oh, when I get my career on track, then I'll make time for the Lord's service. When I get my children raised, then I'll make time. And then we're dead, and we've never done it. It happens all the time. Jesus teaches this lesson so that it will be put down and applied for generations and centuries to come, and we see it today. But then notice the last half of the lesson. The master, being angry with those who made excuses, who did not come, sent out his servant to the seemingly most undeserving, the ones you would least expect. And he said to them, come in, come in to the feast. And here Jesus teaches 
The same lesson Paul did when Paul said he hasn't chosen those who are rich and powerful and smart and clever. He's chosen the base things, the things which are despised, to confound the mighty. He sent his servants out to the highways, to the hedges, to the byways. And he said, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. God is going to magnify his name in the servant. And nothing is going to stop that. We see that lesson as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there on his final approach to Jerusalem. And the children came waving palm fronds and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Worshipping and adoring Jesus. People tried to silence him. Don't draw attention to him. Don't praise his name. And Jesus said, if the children were silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. You see, God's going to perfect his praise. And he does it in the most unexpected ways. And in this case, when there were Pharisees who were too busy with their lives to make time for God, God sent his messengers out to the poor, to the maimed, to the halt, to the blind, and said, come in, come in. And they came and they worshipped. And that is, in fact, what Jesus did as he established his church as a physical representation of his kingdom. The Jewish hierarchy, the Jewish establishment, they rejected Christ. They crucified him. So Jesus sent his apostles out and they, he sent them into the common area of the city. And on the day of Pentecost, they preached and thousands heard. And God made it so they all heard in their own native language so there could be no confusion. They were pricked in their hearts. They believed. They were brought to worship. They came in. And they maintained that fellowship. And the church grew, and the church prospered, and the church was blessed. And when the Jews rejected it, the Gentiles received it and fulfilled the prophecy of God's Word, a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. I hope this morning as we think about these words this afternoon, as we continue to, to meditate on it, as you do your reading in advance of next week's message, you'll see the application and that we'll prioritize God's Word and obedience in our lives. We'll prioritize what He's told us to do and make it first and be willing to take the chance, the risk, to sacrifice those other priorities, to do that which we know is Christ-honoring and see if the Lord doesn't bless with His presence, with His comfort, and even the physical necessities, the physical needs. It's amazing how we so often fail to see God's delivering hand simply because we never wait to see what He will do. We never try obedience to see what the result might be. We just give up before the fight ever comes. We bow to pressures of family, of friends, of employers, of school, of, of whatever it may be that this world has to offer. And as a result, the miracles that God has determined are never experienced in our lives. And we often begin to doubt the reality of His promises. Why? Because we've never trusted Him enough to see 
him work. Thank you for your attention and your prayer this morning.